I would really encourage you to open a Bible. If you didn't think to bring one, there should be one near you. Uh, Maybe on a pew rack near you, you might have to get up and reach over and get it. We're going to be in Revelation, the last book of the Bible, chapter 2. And there's a Bible app event uh, that has a lot of scripture in it because we're going to cover a lot of scripture today. You may feel to yourself, wow, we're reading a lot of scripture. That's on purpose. Um, I can remember, uh, you know, in the early days of preaching, uh, as I was learning to preach, you know, students would say, what's the right number of verses for a sermon to have? Is it seven? Is it 12? It's as many as it takes. That's the right number. And we're going to cover a lot of ground. I thought about doing seven different sermons, one for each of the churches, but I would like to be done with the book of Revelation before the Lord returns. So um, we're not going to do that. Uh, We're going to just look uh, at these two chapters together. Um, John is writing, and Jesus is speaking. And actually, Jesus says, write this down, and send it to the angel at each of these churches. Each church has an angel. And you might think to yourself, that's kind of weird. Does our church have an angel? And the answer is yes, it is me. <laughs> because when, when I believe that when Jesus says, write this to the angel, he means the pastor. It is not that pastors are angelic, and I certainly am not angelic, but a pastor and an angel share this quality. They are messengers. And so he's saying to the, to the messenger that I have designated to be for that church, here's the message and give it to those people. So that's what we're looking at today. If you're on social media or if you watch the news even, you probably have heard of uh, an event called Storm Area 51. How many have heard of that? Put your hands up. Okay, good. Maybe about a third of us have, have come upon that. Area 51 is in Nevada. It's in the desert in Nevada. It's a secret Air Force, U.S. Air Force base. Uh, it was actually purchased. The land was acquired in 1955. There's a big salt lake there, so you can uh, do what you need to do to test vehicles. And the Air Force tells us Recently, they've told us the reason we got that was to test the U-2 spy plane, which was a big secret back in the day. And uh, since then, everything that happens in Area 51 is top, top, top secret. And you know that whenever there's something that's top secret, there's always conspiracy theorists who have, who have said, ah, what is it that they really don't want us to know there? And so there's been a lot of conjecture by conspiracy theorists that that is where the government hides all the UFOs that it has, that it has gathered up, uh, recovered through the years. Roswell, yeah, that's in a warehouse in, in Area 51. That's what's going on there. Uh, it's kind of interesting. If you watch the X-Files back in the day, you were in and out of Area 51 just like you were in and out of your shoes. You know, uh, it was a, a big deal. And I don't know if you've seen Independence Day with Will Smith. Uh, that's a, a movie where I think they picked up maybe an a alien aircraft. Uh, I can't remember. I haven't seen that movie since it came out. Uh, in Area 51 to fight the battle with, yeah. So yeah, it's kind of a fun thing to do. The reason that Area 51 is in the news these days is because of a Facebook event called Storm Area 51, They Can't Stop All of Us. Here's how the thinking goes. I want to know what's in there. I want to know what's behind the fences. I want to go on that base and look around. And you know what? If we show up in large numbers, they can't keep all of us out. Some of us will get in there and we'll be able to figure it out. So on the third weekend of September... I won't be here. I'll be out there. No, 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 that's not true. On the third weekend of September, a couple million people say they're going to show up at Area 51. In fact, when I looked on Facebook yesterday, three million people are planning to go or be interested. The actual number yesterday that say they're going is 2,072,369 people planning to attend. Now, honestly, I think for most of them, it's just fun and games, right? It's just a funny thing, and it's kind of a fun thing. If you read... If you read the signs posted around Area 51, you can see that it's not fun and games to the U.S. Air Force. Not even a little bit. They are serious about that area being serious. And the signs are very clear. 
Warning, keep out. Uh, it, it lets you know the warning is actually dire. And when you decide to go into this restricted area, can you read the bottom line of that sign? Use of deadly force authorized by the installation commander. Wow. Now, those signs are kind of, in a sense, like Revelation 2 and 3. Area 51 signs warn hikers or people who are interested to be careful where you walk, because if you walk in the wrong zone, deadly force is authorized. And Revelation 2 and 3 are signs regarding our walk in faith. And it warns us about spiritual danger zones. And uh, entering those can be kind of serious. That's what Jesus is speaking about when he speaks to these seven churches in the area of western Turkey. He's talking to them about things in their lives that need their attention because as they engage in these kinds of things, they've, they've entered a spiritual danger zone. Before we talk about those zones, though, just I want to remind you, Jesus, as he says this, he identifies himself clearly, and he identifies himself as authoritative. You may have noticed on the sign that was on the screen a moment ago, it says, by the order of the installation commander, you know, and that's, that's the Air Force's way of saying, this isn't just from some guard. This is the head guy. He says, stay out of here. Well, Jesus wants you to know, this isn't just from some pastor. It's not even just from John the Apostle. This is from him. Now, we are going to look at verses like crazy today. And I hope your Bibles are open to Revelation 2 or you have the Bible app going because I put them all in there for you. I'm going to do a lot of reading today. And some of them, we're going to read two times. The verses we're going to look at, maybe three. But I want you to see in each of these seven churches how Jesus identifies himself to them. So look at chapter 2 and look at verse 1. To the angel of the church at Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, skip ahead to verse eight, church number two. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came back to life again. That's impressive. Let's go to the third one, chapter two, verse 12. The angel of the church, to the angel of the church in Pergamon write, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Wow, it's getting even more, more intense, more impressive. Skip down to chapter 2, verse 18. To the angel of the church at Thyatira, write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Go to chapter 3. Look at verse 1. To the angel of the church at Sardis write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And then in verse seven, to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. And then number seven, the seventh church, verse 14 of chapter three. To the angel of the church of Laodicea write, these are the words of the Amen the faithful and true witness, and catch this, the ruler of God's creation. What do you think he wants those churches to know? What do you think he wants those readers to know? What does he want us to know? He wants us to know these words are important. This isn't just somebody writing. This is God in the flesh. This is Jesus who came back from the dead. These are words that if you ignore them, you ignore them at your own peril. And he speaks about that. Let's look at a few of them. Look at chapter two, verse five. In the latter part of that, he says, if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. 
And then in verse 16, he says, repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And then in verse 22, I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. Pause. That's a big theme throughout the book of Revelation, that he gives them time to repent. He gives them warning to repent. He even gives them a touch of his wrath, and still they do not repent. This is the first time we've encountered that phrase. We'll see it again in the weeks that are ahead. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling, so I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each according to your deeds, each of you according to your deeds. Wow. You ignore these words at your own peril. He emphasizes that in 3.3. He emphasizes that in 3.16. The fact is that the pathway of the Christian life is fraught with peril while being filled with joys. The perils are the danger zones. So let's talk about them. Let's talk about these danger zones. And if you can turn your head sideways, you can read on the screen that it says, ask yourself, do any of these, do any of these zones describe your life right now? Because remember, we're looking at these words that were written to Christians like us that were messages from Jesus for them and we're applying it to our very lives today. So as we talk about these zones, do they fit with you at all? The first of the seven zones is what I'm calling the zone of loveless sacrifice. And by the way, these titles of the zones, they come from me. Some of them are pretty good and most of them are just like, man, Steve, couldn't you find a better resource, you know? But here's the first one, loveless sacrifice. Loveless sacrifice. You know that loving someone involves serving them, but serving someone doesn't always involve loving them. Loving something, someone always entails serving. For example, ask the mom what her motives are in caring for her children, and she'll tell you, I love them. Love. Or ask the person who's dating that girl, why did you go the whole way around and open her door? She can open that door. Love. Or ask the people serving at church, why did you come in early and turn the coffee on? And why did you make sure that the air conditioner was working? Why was it that you picked up that stuff? Why did you order the supplies for the kitchen? Why, why did you teach that Sunday school class? Why did you serve in a nursery? Why did you sit down with those teens and tell your story? And if they think about it, the healthy ones, the spiritually healthy ones will say, love. Now, did you notice I said the spiritually healthy ones serve out of love? Sometimes service is not done in love. Sometimes service is done lovelessly. And when it is, that is when you're in a danger zone. When you serve in love, man, you're serving from your sweet spot. But when you serve without love, loveless sacrifice, well, listen to Jesus' words. Look again at chapter two, verse one. We're gonna read what we read a moment ago and then we're gonna get a little more, we're gonna do that for context and then a little more content. So this is the church at Ephesus and he says, to the angel of the church at Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and you have endured hardship in my name and have not grown weary. Wow. 
This church family in Ephesus is made up of people who are willing to serve. In fact, the very first thing that Jesus says about them is, I know your deeds, and they're good. You're hard workers. What could be wrong? Or read on, verse 4. Yet I have this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Now, I notice here, Jesus doesn't say to these people who are engaged in loveless service, you need to just quit serving. What he does say is, you need to just start loving. And he's saying to them, you need to love me because that was your first love. What Jesus shows us here is something that you really know, (laughs) that love is a decision. There's a book by Smalley and Trent, Changed My Marriage. Love is a decision or love is a choice. I can't remember which it was. The point is, love is not just a feeling. Occasionally, someone will come to me and say, Steve, I just don't love my spouse anymore. And I try to be sympathetic because I think we all have felt that kind of feeling from time to time. But the bottom line is, and I don't have any facts to show this, but I believe it with all my heart. Love is about 10% feeling and 90% obedience. That's love. Ask the mother who gets up for the fourth time with that baby, ask her at three o'clock in the morning, why are you doing this? And she won't say, because I have a feeling of love that compels me. But she will say, because of love. Because she knows that love is a rugged choice sometimes to do the right thing. Because love is a decision. It's not just how you feel in your heart. And you're in a danger zone if you're not deciding to love as you're serving. Loveless serving. Danger zone number one. Danger zone number two is the zone of surprise at suffering. That's a bad title, but it's all I got. Pain, suffering. It always seems to surprise us. I can remember I had a 65 International Scout. I wish I still had that today because have you seen how much those things are going for? And, and I, it had a four-cylinder engine and my, I'm, I'm convinced to this day that my older brother, he didn't like me driving around in the hay fields because he was farming. And so I'm, I'm convinced that he took all the spark plug wires off and put them on randomly. If you know anything about automobiles, you know that's gonna be a problem. It's not gonna start. So I was re-putting them on. My uncle Wilbur was there with me. He was one of my favorite uncles. He was the mechanical uncle. And as I'm putting those spark plugs on and trying to start it, finally we got it running, but it wasn't quite right. And I did a very foolish thing. Give me a break. I was about 15 years old. I reached in and I grabbed a hold of that spark plug while that engine was running. I don't know how well insulated those wires are today, but I can tell you back in the day, I think it was like 70,000 volts. I think it was like 700,000 volts. I think it was like 7 million volts. It was a lot of volts. But I want to tell you that shock, as painful as it was, that's not what hurt me. Here's what hurt. I reached in. The car's pointing in that direction. The engine hood is up like this. I have a hold of it. Ah! And my arm goes, bam! And I opened up my elbow right now. There's blood pouring out of my elbow right now. That's what hurt. My Uncle Wilbur. (laughs) Steve, why did you push your elbow against that engine hood like that? That was stupid, wasn't it? Yeah, it sure was. But here's what it was, that the suffering I experienced there was a surprise to me that I wasn't ready for, and that led to something worse. When you're surprised by suffering, God knows that might lead you to something worse, and you'll find yourself in a danger zone. I have known pastors, (laughs) I have pastor friends, who dropped out of ministry because they were surprised by the pain that it caused them. They were surprised at the resistance they got 
They were surprised by the ungratefulness certain people had in their lives. They were surprised by the betrayal that comes to anyone in leadership. They were surprised by the thanklessness. They were surprised by the unwarranted, not the warranted, but the unwarranted criticism. And they didn't think it would be that way, so they walked away. And you know, in many of those cases, here's what was wrong. They went into serving God with a mindset that said, a mindset that said, you know, since I'm following Jesus, I'll bet he'll make this really smooth for me. <laughs> and so they were surprised at the suffering. And when ministry wasn't smooth for them, they weren't just blown out of the water, they were blown out of the ministry. Surprise at suffering can damage the best of us. I think that was the case in Smyrna. Look at verse 8 of chapter 2. To the angel in the church of Smyrna write, these are the words of him who was the first and last who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty yet you are rich. So Jesus is saying, I know that life is hard. I know you're struggling. I know your finances are bad. But remember, you're rich in ways that the world can't see. Jesus doesn't say it's going to get any better in short order. He prepares them for suffering so they're not surprised at it. The middle of verse 9 picks up. He says, I know about the slander of those who say they're Jews and are not, but our synagogue of Satan, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. So don't be surprised. And it's not just Jesus who warns about this. Peter says, dear friends, don't be surprised at the fire ordeal that has come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in so much as you are participating, as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed in you. Why would Jesus warn them of more suffering to come? Why would Peter warn his reader of the suffering that, that he, there? Why? Why the warning? Because if you enter a boxing ring expecting not to get hit, you'll be out in the first round. Because that first hit to your jaw will come as such a shock, you'll be laying on the mat. But if you know, huh, suffering is part and parcel of following Jesus. Then, when you get hit with it, you can stand. It's a danger zone to be a person who's surprised at suffering. Another danger zone is that of careless doctrine or false teaching. Rich Mullen is my favorite Christian musician ever. He said this sentence, he says, I believe what I believe is what makes me what I am. Do you understand that? What you believe is what makes you who you are. Doctrine is very important. And what you teach and what you are taught, it makes you who you are. Listen to verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has a sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, and yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. That's an impressive bunch of Christians. Verse 14. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so they ate food sacrifice idols and committed sexual morality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, we don't know who the Nicolaitans were. You get a book, a commentator who says, here's who the Nicolaitans are. He's making it up because we don't know who they are. But here's what we do know. We know what sexual morality is. 
And you can see here that Jesus is saying it came from people in the church who were giving false teaching. <laughs> There's a lot of that going around today concerning sexuality. A lot of false teaching. God has sexual standards. He spells them out very clearly in his word. And, and what he does here is let you know that when you are outside of the biblical teaching regarding sexuality, you are in a danger zone. And he says he'll come and deal with it if that's the case. The zone of careless doctrine. Here's a fourth zone. The zone of hard work with soft conscience. That's a stupid title, but it's the best I got again, right? Hard work with a soft conscience. It's having really good deeds, and you're good at doing what you do, but you have a bit of a compromise when it comes to the issue of right and wrong. It's in chapter 2, verse 18. To the angel of the church of Thyatira, write, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and your faith and your service and your perseverance that you are now doing more than you did at first. That sounds really good, right? Verse 20, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and eating of food, sacrifice idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering. And I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of their ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches the hearts and minds. And I will repay each of you according to your deeds. There's one word I want you to see in verse 20. Tolerate. You tolerate, it says in verse 20, that woman Jezebel. Tolerance. It is amazing to me, I've said this before, it's amazing to me that the people, the generation that we taught that tolerance was the most important thing in the world, be tolerant, 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 that generation has has grown up to not tolerate anything with the exceptions of the Christians. And they're like, well, I don't want to be judgy. You know, maybe I don't understand it. Yep, whatever you want to do, that's okay. And Jesus says, you can serve very well in the kingdom of God, but if you're tolerating evil, you're in a danger zone. He goes on to say that if you stand separate from evil, there's a reward. Look at verse 24. He says, now to the rest of you in Thyatira, I say to you, um, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does, not, and does my will to the end, I will give the authority over nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and dash them like, to pieces like pottery, just as I have received the authority from my father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever hears my wor- ears, <laughs> no way, whoever hears my ears. <laughs> that was funny. Whoever hears my ears. Let me read that again. It's verse 29. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Danger zone number five. The zone of being asleep in the light. So when I was in college, um, I worked at a brick factory, Hanley Brick in Somerville, Pennsylvania. Um, They had two kills that were probably from here to the end of the parking lot long, just really long. And they ran cars through them that were probably about six feet wide by 10 feet long, almost the size of a small automobile. Flat cars, about two feet off the ground with fire brick that they had made. And they were were running three shifts through those kills as fast as they could because they were making bricks for someone who was building um, some kind of casinos down in Atlantic City, a guy named Trump. And so all those bricks, if you ever happen to go there, those were made in Somerville, Pennsylvania. I made those. Actually, I didn't make those. I I worked on those cars. I repaired those cars. I was part of a crew of college students who were assigned to do that. 
And I can remember during lunch, I, I saw, I'm a college student, so I'm out till midnight, one in the morning, right? And I can remember during lunch, I would eat my lunch quickly, and then I'd lay down on that kill car. I'd set my, my hard hat just right so that the, the, the inside of it would cradle my head, and I would sleep during the lunch hour. I used to be able to fall asleep like some of you in a sermon. It was amazing, right? <laughs> so I'd lay there sleeping, and one time I was laying there sleeping. That kill, by the way, is 2,500 degrees, Right? One time I'm laying there sleeping, and when I awoke, I realized the other college students had wheeled that thing over to the, the mouth of the kill. <laughs> I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> it can be in a danger zone if you're asleep when you shouldn't be asleep, right? And sometimes Christians can be asleep in the light. Let's go to Revelation 3. Let's read about Sardis. To the angel of the church at Sardis write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deed. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Now here's the words, two words, verse two. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of God. Remember therefore what you received and heard, hold it fast and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will like them be dressed in white. I will never blot out that name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Wake up. Don't be asleep when you're in the light. Two more. Number six, the zone of weakness, just struggling to hang on. This is a group of Christians that doesn't have a lot of problems, but they're weak. I think it's because it's the Church of Philadelphia, and I don't know if you've seen any of their sports teams, but they're all weak. That was fun. Being a Pittsburgh fan, that was a lot of fun right there. If you're a Philadelphia fan, I'm sorry. I'm not really, but anyway. Philadelphia, is, it's a weakness in the church in Philadelphia. It says, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David, who opens what no one, what he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See how I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. And here it is. I know you have little strength, and yet... You have kept my word and have not denied my name. Did you catch that? Little strength. And that's a dangerous place to be. But here's what's interesting. The solution that Jesus says that will take care of this danger of having little strength isn't that they should go to the gym and work out. It isn't even that they need to study the Bible harder. Listen to the solution to it, beginning in verse 9. I will make those who are a synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one can take your crown. To the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write them on the name, I'm sorry, I will write on them the name of God and the name of the city of God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my, from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Did you notice the solution? It's Jesus. In five verses, he says, I will seven times. How egotistical can you be? Well, if you're Jesus, you can be as egotistical as you want to be. And by the way, he's not. He's being kind and loving, and he's saying, I will take care of you when you're in a danger zone of weakness. Now, I've shared this illustration before because it impacted me so profoundly 25 years ago when I heard it. And I've shared it dozens of times. 
What does a sheep do when it encounters a wolf? And that's what these people are. You know, they're, they claim to be followers of Christ, but they're liars. Well, what, what do you do when you encounter something like that? And you know the answer. You just get up on your back feet. You get your little sheep hooves out there, and you go, ah, and you scare that wolf away. You know what they call a sheep that does that, right? Lunch. That's what the wolf calls it, lunch, right? Because that's not what you do as a sheep when there's a wolf around. If you have any sense at all, and you're a sheep and you're in danger, you run to the shepherd. And the shepherd says, I will, I will, I will do these things. There's a danger zone of weakness <laughs> that a lot of us can find ourselves in. The solution's right there. Here's the seventh danger zone. It's tending to the wrong things. Emphasizing the wrong things. Investing in the wrong things. Spending our time on the wrong things. Prioritizing the wrong things. Yesterday we were drinking coffee at breakfast, having breakfast together at the Dutch pantry, and one of the guys brought up a friend of his that puts ice in his coffee. And, you know, he doesn't put just a little ice in it. I, I've seen many people, you know, who will get some coffee and just put a couple ice cubes in it to, drink, to take the hot, the scalding edge off, you know, but it's still good and hot coffee. And he doesn't put a whole lot of ice in it either. My wife likes iced coffee, so she brews that. Some people have regular coffee and they just fill it with ice and now it's iced coffee. So it's nice and cold, they like it that way. This guy, he wants to get it to room temperature. That's what he's looking for, room temperature. I bet you don't know very many people that drink their coffee like that. Because in most of our minds, I either want my coffee to be good and hot or I'll drink iced coffee if the weather is good and hot. But what I don't want is lukewarm coffee. Jesus uses that phrase, lukewarm, to describe the people in Laodicea. Listen to what he says in verse 14 of chapter 3. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you're lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Why? Why are they that way? I want to suggest to you it's because they're tending to the wrong things. Their priorities are wrong. Well, look at the verse, verse 17. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth, and I don't need a thing. They've tended to that sort of thing. I got everything I need. I don't even need Jesus, really. I mean, have you seen my my retirement plan, and I have good health insurance, and we got great doctors. I'm, I'm pretty good. I, I, you say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing, but you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. This is my love. I rebuke with discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who's victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do you see what it was that made them lukewarm? Distractions. Distracted by money and all the pleasures that it brings. Distracted by what they have. Distractions reading a book right now, and this is something that, that churches around America are struggling with right now. It's, it's a drop in attendance to churches. And Pastor Cannon actually spoke about it at Kermansville Days, if you were there. And, and he said, and, and Cannon said, the problem is we lost our first love. That's what Dr. Cannon said, George Cannon. Right? I, th- I'm reading a book right now called uh, Leadership Pain. Our district superintendent recommended it. In fact, he gave me the book I'm reading. He says in there that churches are noticing that regular attendance used to be a couple times every week, maybe three times every week in America, but now regular attendance is a couple times a month, maybe less. 
I'm a regular, I attend a couple times a month. And, and a gentleman who's writing this book, and he's brilliant, he's a, a seminary uh, president, he says in there, he says this, he says, one of the big problems in the church today is Americans have too much disposable income. I don't. <laughs> Maybe you don't. But a lot of us do. Then we have, we, we, we have a lot that we don't, we don't feel a need so much to come to God, to come to him in prayer. I had a buddy, his name was Buddy. Uh, he lived in South Georgia. And he said he pastored a Baptist church down there, Southern Baptist churches. That's the churches to pastor in South Georgia. And it was an agricultural area. It was near Plains. Uh, there were peanut farmers there, uh, like former President Carter had been a peanut farmer. And Buddy said to me, you know, he said, uh, weather's been really good and attendance has been really down. He said, I kind of like it when God holds back the rain. Hmm, you get the point? Get the point, yeah. Sometimes we tend to the wrong things. We tend to, I, I was talking to my wife yesterday about our retirement account. It looks like I'll be able to retire by the time I'm 77 years old. So I'm looking forward to that financially, right? That's not that bad, but you get the point, right? But I have really devoted myself in recent years to getting that money put away and invested so that I have something to retire on when that time comes in my life. I could make that the center of my life. I must not make that the center of my life. My dad retired at, I think, about 65 years of age, and he lived to be 81. Do the math. That was 16 years that my dad enjoyed of retirement. My dad died in 2001. That means for 18 years, he's been living his second retirement. How many more years does he have to go on his second retirement? Eternity. Thank you, Jesus, that my dad prepared for that retirement, right? The zone of tending to the wrong things is a danger zone to be in. By the way, you can avoid these zones. You can, and it's not rocket science. We just talked about some of the answers. The first thing is to love God. Love is a choice. It's a decision. Renew your, your love to him. Remember, he says in, in verse four of chapter two, he says to that first church, he said, I have this against you. You've forsaken the love you had at first. And then he tells them to reminisce. He says, consider how far you've fallen. Think about where you were. Remember what it was like when you first knew Jesus, you first had your sins forgiven. That felt really good. Let that sink in. That's good counsel to couples who maybe they've been married for 10 years or so and they're seven years or 20 years and they're like, you know what? I just, I don't feel like I love like I, like I used to. Okay, that's good that you got that. Now, let's go back. What was it about that person that made you fall in love with them? Remember that. Consider what you once had with Jesus. Consider how far you've moved away from that. And begin to reinvest in your relationship with him. Buy some roses, not literally, but do whatever it is that helps you experience the nearness of God. Do those little things and the big things that you used to do. And by the way, that's what the text tells us. In verse five, the last part of it says, repent and do the things you did at first. So I don't feel close, I don't feel that. I have that kind of you know, deeds without love that we're talking about. What do I do? Well, do the things you first did. You probably, when you became a Christian, you began reading the Bible. Maybe you're not reading it again, or maybe you're just not really experiencing it in a full way. You have so many translations at your fingertips. Try a different translation. Listen to some Christian music. Buy some Christian music, and then you'll feel like, I gotta listen to it just to get my money's worth out of it, right? Or dig up that old Christian music that you loved. I found a CD on Amazon of Christian music from 25 years ago in my life. I've been looking for that since the era of cassettes. Man, I listened to it till Laurel was like, would you please turn that off? That's all I can stand, yeah. Buy it, listen to it, enjoy it. Listen to Christian radio, Christian podcast. Craig Groeschel, Ch Chip Ingram, John Piper. John Piper is a giant 
when it comes to preaching. And his stuff is free. Listen to it. Reinvest, renew your first love. Second, prepare mentally for suffering. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fire ordeal that has come to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Let me just say this. If you love Jesus, suffering is part and parcel of being in a world where people don't love Jesus. It's just going to happen. So you, when you know it's going to happen, there are going to be some people that don't like me because I like Jesus and I don't do the things that they wish that I would do. So what? It's not as big a deal when you know that it's coming. And if you're prepared for it, God helps you manage it. Number three, study God's word carefully. Man, we got resources. Mission 119. That is just such a great great resource that many of you are already using. If you're not using, you want help using it, I will help you. I will help you to use it. It's really a gift. Bible reading plans. I cannot imagine the number of people that the Bible app has, God has used the Bible app to change their lives. All those Bible reading plans in there changed countless life. Has it changed yours? Are you reading God's word? Small groups. What a great way to study the Bible. You, you study, by the way, not to be right, but you study to know God and to know the truth. You study to stay out of danger zones. Number four, work hard and don't compromise. Be on fire, but don't play with fire. And don't think that just because you've done all these good things, then you can go ahead and do a few bad things and that'll be cool. I've literally heard Christians say, it blows my mind. Every time I've heard it, I've heard it more than once. You know, we worked really hard here. I don't think God would mind if we fill in the blank with whatever sin that you think or compromise that you think one might put in there and it would feel rewarding. Don't do that. That's a danger zone. Don't compromise. Do the good things God has called you to do. Don't compromise with that which God has said don't do. Number five, persevere. <laughs> Debbie was my babysitter when I was little. I think I was like 17 or 18 years old. She was babysitting me. No, I wasn't that old. I was probably seven or eight years old. I can remember uh, we, were, uh, we were riding bikes. Uh, the farm that I lived on was on top of a hill. So every bike ride was downhill leaving, but it was uphill coming back. And I can remember the hill was steep enough that until I got a 10-speed, I was unable to pedal up that hill, and I didn't have a 10-speed when I was seven years old. So Debbie and I are out together, and uh, we're uh, riding bikes together, and we're pushing the bike up the hill, you know? And I would, I would push it. She's right beside me. I'm pushing. Oh, I need to stop. <sighs> okay. Well, let's stop and rest, Debbie. <sighs> I was that kid. Okay. And then I go as far as Ed, and then I go as far as the next guy. You know, six stops between here and the back of the church. That was me. And I remember something that Debbie said. She said this. She said, Steve, the hardest thing about pushing uphill is getting started. But once you get going, it's just a matter of walking beside the bike. That's true. That's true. Once you get that thing going, you're just walking beside it. Starting it. That's the harder part. That has to do with perseverance. It's not that Jesus doesn't want us to take a break. He's good with the idea of Sabbath. He invented the idea of Sabbath, right? He just doesn't want you to give up. So move forward. Don't stop. And look ahead. <laughs> look ahead at the doors open, that the doors God opens for you. Look for ways to serve him. Walk through them. Don't be looking down. I just don't know. I don't know what Jesus wants me to do. Yeah, I know he doesn't want you to look at your toes. Yeah. And don't be looking to the side. Like, I don't know what Jesus wants me to do, but that's kind of cool over there. Yeah. Look ahead. He will put it in front of you. Follow him. And think about eternity. <laughs> Are you preparing for eternity? Uh, don't let the good things of this life, disposable income included, don't let it distract you from the priorities that Jesus wants you to have. Area 51. <laughs> 
2,072,369 people say they're going. I think only a few of them will be dumb enough to actually enter it, that danger zone. But these seven danger zones that Jesus warns about, I'm afraid all of us are foolish enough to enter those from time to time. I have. I do. How about you? I want to pray that you would consider them this morning, that we as individuals would consider them this morning, and that we would, <laughs> that we would choose to stay out of the danger zones. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. So as I pray for you, would you stand? Let's unite our hearts in prayer. Father in heaven, we are thankful for your love for us. And Jesus, we are so glad you wrote these letters to these seven churches. And it is so cool to see how they apply to us right here and now. Because in one sense, people don't change uh, throughout history. Every generation deals with some of the same things. And in another sense, you do not change, period. And you desire for us the same that you desired for people 2,000 years ago. So Jesus, I pray that you will show us times, show us when, show us how we have entered the danger zone. And may we be unlike the people of Revelation who will not repent. May we be men and women who repent. In fact, right now, may we in our hearts say, God, I turn away from that danger zone. I will follow you. And as we do that, may we draw close to you. Show us how to do that by the power of your spirit living in us. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. See